The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians. I'll be reading in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And I'm reading from the King James, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fit, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Thank you, Bill, for reading that passage for us, and thank all of you for being here today. It's good for us to be able to worship God, and we're glad for the opportunity and for the privilege, and we're glad for the opportunity that Uh, Lord willing awaits us after our service today to be able um, to have a part in uh, our young people honoring those who are slightly older and uh, letting their appreciation be known. It's good for us to do things like that and we're so glad that we can. Well we've been talking about it for a little while now so you already know I'm sure that um, in just about two weeks Our Arise Spiritual Growth Seminar will be upon us, and I want to say just a thing or two about that as we transition into our lesson this morning. I want to just remind us to um, remember that um, the point of the weekend, the goal of the weekend is to emphasize spiritual growth for every Christian. That event has been designed with every Christian in mind, every age every age spiritually, whatever your situation may be, it is designed for everybody. It's not just uh, supposed to be a gathering of preachers. This year, our theme is all about growing spiritually together as a family. And so there are some lessons that are designed to address, with, to, uh, to address different points about um, the different roles in our families. There are lessons that are designed to deal with questions about things like gender and sexuality and what the Bible says about those things and how God's people should view them and how they should deal with the questions that are common in our society. There are lessons about giving uh, each member of our families what they need to thrive spiritually. There is even a lesson that is designed for those whose family may not be, um, may not be 
what the Bible or what we might describe as the biblical ideal. It is designed to be practical. It is designed to um, be something that helps all of us. There will be a book prepared. There are, uh, there, the lessons are going to be recorded. And so, again, if you're not making plans or if you haven't made your plans to be a part of it, please do. Please consider coming and joining us for some or all of that weekend as you're able. And we talk about growing together spiritually as families. Now, this morning, with our minds geared towards spiritual growth, what I want us to do is I want us to look at the passage that was read for us a moment ago, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 and following. And I want us to think about this passage this morning, and the reason why is because it is a context that involves both individual spiritual growth and church growth as a whole, or congregational growth as a whole. It may be that from time to time we think about our own spiritual growth and we, we maybe think about it from the standpoint that, well, it doesn't really affect anybody but me. My spiritual growth or my spirituality, if you will, is nobody's business but mine and it doesn't affect anybody but me. But I want to suggest to you from the passage that we're looking at this morning that that is not at all true. Spiritual growth affects the church. Church growth is a result of the spiritual growth that happens with each individual member of the congregation. And so this context, Ephesians 4, verse 7 to 16, it's going to deal with the health and the development of the church and the part that every member plays in its production. So the plan for this morning is simply to work our way through this context to understand what it's all about, and then we'll draw some points of application in our conclusion this morning. Let's begin, first of all, by looking at the big picture. In other words, when we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, where are we in this book, and what point is it that Paul is trying to make? And that, of course, is important because What happens in chapter 4, verse 7 and following is directly related to what happens in chapters 1 to 3 and will be related to what follows throughout the rest of the book. So what we need to keep in mind is that Paul has the entire church in view as he approaches Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 and following. You may remember that this book is divided into two parts. There is what we might call the doctrinal part in the first three chapters, and then there is what we may call the practical part in the second three chapters. And in the first three chapters, Paul deals with three basic things about the church in a number of different passages throughout these first three chapters. First of all, he talks about the plan, and the plan is to bring the church of Christ into existence. Now, just for a moment, I want us to think about that term or that designation, Church of Christ, and what it means, what it's all about. Take the term, Church of Christ, and divide it into its individual parts, and you, pe- you can begin to see what that designation means. The word church has to do with people. The Bible talks about Christians or the church being those who have been called by the gospel to come out of the world and to be God's people. So when we say church, we're simply talking about people. The word of is a word that shows possession. And the word Christ, 
That's the possessor. So when we talk about the church of Christ, we're simply talking about the people who belong to Christ. And in the first three chapters of this book, the Apostle Paul talks about God's plan from eternity in order to bring this group of people, this church, into existence. In chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, it is called the body of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 11 to 18, we learn that the body of Christ is made up of all different people. And we learn in chapter 1, verse 13, that these are people who obey the gospel and who acknowledge the authority of Christ, chapter 1, verse 19 to 23. And then when we arrive in chapter 4, as a, as a preview of what comes in the rest of our study this morning, we learn that God's desire for this church is that the people be perfectly united in what they believe and in how they live. Chapter 4, verse 4 to 6, and the rest of the practical section. And we also learn that this is God's plan from eternity in chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. So the plan in the first three chapters of this book is to bring the church of Christ into existence, the people who belong to Jesus. The process, it involved and required the sacrifice and the death of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible tells us that we are redeemed through the blood of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 13, we learn that we are brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Jesus purchased the church with his blood, Acts 20 and verse number 28. And so the church of Jesus Christ only comes into existence through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then there's the purpose. And that purpose is salvation. In the entire second chapter of this book, we read about the scope of salvation, if you will, where at the beginning, Paul talks about how we're dead and we're lost in sin and separated from God. But then he begins to talk about how God, through his grace and through his mercy, has sacrificed his son, Jesus Christ, so that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to God and to one another in one body uh, through Jesus Christ, made possible by the cross, and it's all to the glory of God. Then later in chapter 5, verse 23, the Apostle Paul will summarize it with this statement. Christ is the Savior of the body. So the plan, bring the church of Christ into existence. The process, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and the purpose, the salvation of the soul to the glory of God. These are the three things that Paul describes in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And so now as we arrive in chapter 4 and we begin looking at some practical items in relation to the doctrinal items in the first three chapters, you'll notice that the very first thing that Paul deals with is the subject, <coughs> is the subject of unity. No wonder when we study Ephesians chapter 2 and we learn that God's desire from eternity is this one body of people called by the gospel who are perfectly united. That the first thing Paul would describe then in the practical section is the attitudes that are necessary in order to build and make that unity possible. Then we get to chapter 4 and verse number 7. And now Paul begins to transition from talking about attitudes that are required in individuals in about the first three verses 
to what the Lord has provided for the church as a whole in verse 7 and following, and how each member of the church can contribute to the health and the growth and the unity of the church as a whole. So let's look then at our first section, chapter 4, verse 7 to 10. And in these three verses, the Bible tells us this. But to each one of us, um, excuse me, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above uh, the heaven, all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now to break this section down in the simplest way possible, I want us to notice that there are basically three things that Paul deals with in these verses. There is a what, there is a why, and there is a when. <coughs> Excuse me, and they are all important. Notice the what. Paul describes the what in verse number 7, but to each one of us this grace uh, it was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The what is a gift. We're talking about gifts. What kind of gifts? More about that in a moment. Then notice the why. You'll notice in the same verse that Paul describes the gift being according to the measure of grace. And so the idea is that Christ gave gifts because it's what the church needed. The why is because it fills the needs of the church. And then look at the when. The when follows in verse 8, 9, and 10, and it's a quotation from Psalm 68 in verse 18, and it's referring to the ascension of Jesus Christ. So what we learn is that when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven upon that occasion, that he gave gifts to men, and the reason that he gave those gifts is by grace, because the church needed it in order to be mature, and in order to grow, and in order to be steadfast. Now let's step away from the context of Ephesians just for a couple of moments and talk a little bit more about what these gifts are all about and what exactly it is that he's talking about. The gifts that he's talking about in this context have reference to the miraculous spiritual gifts that were available in the first century. Now there are a couple of things that need to be, uh, need to be uh, thought about along this line. First of all, the context that we're studying, it makes that clear in more than one reason, but let me share just two with you. When we get to verse number 13, you'll notice that there is a word in verse 13, and that word is till or until. That's a word that has to do with time. And so that word tells us that the gifts that Christ gave, that they had a time limit, that they were going to expire at some point. They were only given until some point in time came. And we'll talk about that point in time in just a few moments. Notice also, if we, if we, as we've already noticed, that he identifies when these gifts were given or when they began. And he says they were given at the ascension of Christ. So just those two points all by themselves in this context should clue us into the fact that we're talking about some things that were very unique and very specific in their scope and that there was a time limit that was placed upon them. And that clues us into the fact that we're talking about those miraculous gifts that existed in the first century. These are the same things as we expand our scope beyond the book of Ephesians. These are the same gifts that would be given by the laying on of the apostles' hands as we learn in passages like Acts 6, verse 1 to 6, and Acts 8 in verse number 6. 
And we also learn as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, that there were nine total spiritual gifts that were given as Paul catalogs them in that context, those 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And what's also interesting about them is that when you break them down into different categories, you will find that they all had something to do with the proclamation of the gospel. And the reason that that's interesting, as you recall, is because in Mark 16, verse 20, we have a purpose statement for the miraculous. And the purpose statement is this, that they were designed to confirm the word. So if the miraculous gifts were given and their purpose was to confirm the word, it shouldn't surprise us that when we look at the catalog of what they were in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that they all have something to do with the proclamation of the word of God. For example, there are gifts listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that have to do with the content of the message. That would be wisdom and knowledge and faith. There are gifts listed in the catalog of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that have to do with the confirmation of the message. That's healing and miracles and prophecy. There are gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that have to do with the communication of the message. That's discernment and tongues and interpretation of tongues. But 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 have one very important thing in common that we ought to point out at this time. And that's what's written in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Paul makes this statement. He says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And as we travel back to Ephesians chapter 4, what we learn now as we continue studying this context is that these spiritual gifts, these miraculous gifts were given in the first century. And the reason that they were given was, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, for the profit of all. They were to be used for the benefit and the building up and the encouragement of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what those gifts were for. Now, look at the next section of Ephesians chapter 4 and look at verse number 11. Notice now Paul in this passage, he begins to elaborate some in the context of Ephesians and he describes some different roles, if you will. And he says this, And he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some teachers, excuse me, and some pastors and some teachers. There are five groups here, and there are two observations that we need to make about these five groups. First of all, let's look at the groups. There are, number one, apostles. The word apostle means literally a messenger. And as we study our Bibles and we read Acts chapter 1, what we learn is that in order to be an apostle, a a person had to meet certain qualifications. They had to have been alive and they had to have heard Jesus as he taught and they had to have seen the risen Lord among a number of other things. And so there were only a certain amount of men who could be called apostles and no one today can meet those, no one today can meet those characteristics. Then there are prophets. And a prophet is not someone who just tells the future in the context of the New Testament. It is a forth teller of the word or the will of God. It's someone who literally bubbles forth or spills over with God's word. Then there are evangelists. These are literally those who are heralds or proclaimers of the gospel. There are pastors. And this word pastor, as we study our Bibles, is a word that is synonymous with words like elders and bishops and overseers. And these are the men that the Bible tells us are to exist, number one, in a plurality. 
They are to, number two, be men who meet a certain level of qualification, those things that are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And these, this group of men who meet these qualifications are to exist in every local congregation of the people of God. And these men are given instruction to oversee and to superintend the individual congregations of God's people. And then there's this word teacher or teachers, and these are literally those who instruct others in God's word. Now, your translation may say something like this, pastor teachers, and the reason is because there's a little bit of a question with translating this passage as to whether pastors and teachers should be individuals or whether we're talking about pastors who teach, but either way, the principles don't change. So those are our five groups. Now, let's make two observations First of all, you may be wondering, we just finished talking in verses 7 to 10 about miraculous spiritual gifts and how they were to help the church. And now we're talking about these roles. And so how in the world do we have a connection between the two? And here's the answer. Because in the first century, all five of these had a miraculous component. And what we have to remember is that as the Apostle Paul writes these words by inspiration of the Spirit, that the revelation of God was not yet complete. It wasn't in its total and final form. And so these brethren didn't have the ability to open up their Bibles in their hands like we do, to listen to the preacher as he preached and to compare what he said with what the Scripture said. They didn't have the ability to do that. So these spiritual gifts, these miraculous abilities, if you will, they enable the church, they enable the church to hear and to know and to apply the word and the will of God. The second observation is this. Two of these functions in Ephesians 4 verse number 11 are no longer a reality. That would be, that would be apostles and that would be prophets. And the reason is because their function has been completed and fulfilled. There's there's no one alive who can meet the qualification of an apostle. And there's no need for prophets because the Bible tells us in passages like 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17 and uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 and a number of other passages that the word of God now is in its final form and so there's no longer any need for revelation or for God to speak to or through people today because the Bible tells us that he speaks exclusively through his word, the Bible that we hold in our hands. But the other three that are mentioned in this passage are very much still a reality. They very much still exist. Evangelists and pastors or elders or bishops and teachers all still exist and all are still needed and all still play a role in the overall health of the church, but they do so without the miraculous component. Now you may be wondering, okay, how do we reach the conclusion that the miraculous component is no longer with us? Look at the next section. And remember what we mentioned just a little while ago, beginning in verse number 12 and working our way through verse um, number 16, we find these indicators of time. Notice in verse number 13, the word till we come to the unity of the faith. And that word till is an indicator of time. But this section is broken down into basically three parts. And what this section in these three parts tell us is the reason why Christ gave the gifts, the reason why those things were available during the time of the first century. And here they are. Number one, there's equipping and serving and edifying. Look at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints 
for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The word equipping has to do with perfecting or building up or making adequate. The word service has to do with just that, a work of service or ministry. And the word edifying is related to a word that has to do with construction. It's talking about building up. And so Paul says the reason why these things were given is so that the church might be perfected. So that the church might learn and know how to serve and do ministry. And so that the church may be built up or strengthened or constructed. But then there's the second In verse number 14, there's stability. We'll come back to verse 13 in a moment. There's stability. Notice he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. When Paul descri- what Paul describes in verse number 14 is a situation in which the early church, without having the completed form of the word of God in their hands, imagine a situation in which a person stands before them and says, thus saith the Lord, and begins to tell them to do something, and then someone else comes right behind them and says, thus saith the Lord, and they say something completely the opposite. How then is the church to know who's telling the truth? How were they to be able to avoid false doctrine and those who would seek to take advantage of them? The answer in the first century were these spiritual gifts. They needed doctrinal stability. They needed a firm doctrinal footing so that they wouldn't be disturbed by the whims of false teachers. But then the third group, verse 15 and 16, is growth. There's equipping and serving and edifying. There's stability and now there's growth. Look at verse 15 and 16. Notice it's a word of contrast. But, he says, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working um, by which uh, every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Key in on the final part of verse 16. Notice he talks about every joint supplying. He talks about the effective working by which every part does its share and how every part doing its share causes the growth of the body, the whole body, for the edifying of itself in love. You see, now he's worked his way to the individual members of the church, of the congregation. He started off by talking about the gifts that Christ gave. He talked about the reason why those were given for the equipping and the building up and the stability of the church. And he says also it's so that the church can grow. And he says that that growth is made possible by every single member doing its part and its share as God has given them the ability that the church may grow and edify itself in love, meaning that the body might grow because its parts individually are growing. Now I want you to look back with me at verse number 13 because we said we'd go back to it uh, just a minute ago. Notice now we have our time stamp where Paul says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is a passage in which the Apostle Paul is talking about the revelation of God's word coming uh, and uh, coming to be in its completed form. And how these gifts are given uh, only temporarily until our knowledge grows perfect, until our ability to grow is perfected, until this word that we hold in our hands comes to its completion and to its point of unity, if you will. The unity of the faith has to do with the uniting of the system of faith in all its component parts. So these spiritual gifts are given. 
in the first century so that the church can grow and thrive and they're given and they're given to last until the word of god reaches its completion now here's an important point as we begin to make some important application You may be reading this and you may be thinking, all right, this is all, I see it, it's all clear. It has to do with the things that were going on in the first century. But if miracles aren't happening today and they're not, according to this passage and other passages like 1 Corinthians 13, 10, then how does this context have any application to me and to the church today? And here's the answer. Because though God is not giving us what we need anymore in a miraculous way, He absolutely has given us everything that we need through the book, the Bible that we hold in our hands, through the fellowship that we have with one another and the encouragement that we give. God has given us everything that we need in order to be complete and perfect and mature and in order for the church to grow. And that's the goal. That's the idea overall of this context. And every member of the body of Christ, just as then, even today, can still effect the growth of the church as a whole by their own service and their own work and their own spiritual growth. This passage emphasizes the need for every Christian to grow spiritually. Earlier in this chapter, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3, you remember that Paul described that we all have an obligation to develop attitudes that are going to help the church to be strong and united. And in the next section, he begins to emphasize the need to change and orient our minds away from worldliness and toward righteousness and toward things that are spiritual. And that's something that every member of the body must and can do. And the result of that is going to be the positive effect on the whole of God's people. But this passage also emphasizes that when each member grows spiritually, the whole church grows spiritually. I might think sometimes that if I neglect excelling in spiritual matters, that it's only my problem, it only affects me, but that's not the case at all. Chapter 2, verses 19 to 22 of this book describes us as being individual pieces, each one of us of the house of God. Think about a house. If the walls begin to sag, the frame begins to sag, if it's weak and it's untrue, then the roof is going to begin to sag too. Every part has an impact on the whole. We're to be of the same mind toward one another. Romans chapter 12 verse 10 tells us, and we're to comfort and edify one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 11 tells us, so if I ever adopt the attitude that I'm my own Christian and what I, ha- what I do has no effect on the whole of God's people, then I'm sinning because that's an ungodly and an unbiblical sort of attitude to have. Friends, church growth begins with me. The health of the church as a whole is going to depend to some degree on my health as an individual member of the body of Jesus Christ. And so in passage after passage, other than just this context, God will emphasize the fact, number one, that he's given us everything that we need in order to grow and in order to thrive. And he tells us that not only has he given us what we need, that he expects all of us to use it and to use it in love, and to use it in joy, and to use it with the desire not just to grow ourselves, but to help our brothers and sisters in Christ and the congregation in which we serve to be the strongest and to be the best that it can be. So it's a challenge that's given to every one of us, myself included, to open up our Bibles and to read and study them daily and to utilize the things that God has given us in this great book that help us to grow and help us to thrive and help us to be stronger so that we can help one another to do the same.
This morning, the Lord's invitation is offered, and maybe it's the case that there's someone here who's not yet obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If that's the case, you've not yet begun to grow. You've not yet begun to uh, help the church grow because you're not a member. But the Bible tells us that when a person is willing to obey the gospel, that means that they hear the gospel and they believe in the deity of Jesus. Romans 10 and 17 and John 8 and verse 24. They're willing to repent of their sins, Acts 3 and 19, and confess their faith in Christ Jesus, Romans 10 verse 9 and 10, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. That God will add them to the church, Acts 2 and verse 47, and that they can begin living a faithful and an abundant life, John 10 and verse number 10. Growing spiritually, utilizing every tool that God has placed in our hands, that we might, that we might glorify God as individuals, but also that we might help our brothers and sisters in the church of our Lord grow and glorify God together in that way. Maybe it's the case this morning that You've been neglecting your spiritual growth. Maybe it's the case that in neglecting your spiritual health, it's had a negative impact on the church. Maybe there's someone in the congregation who's close to you and you've brought them down because you've not been growing as you should and you know it and the word of God has convicted your heart and caused you to think, I really need to do better and I need to make changes so that I can build up and not tear down. Then make that change. We'd love to help you to do it. Come forward and let your need be known while we stand together and sing the invitation song.